touch your Bible or cell phone, some device, you'll be looking at the scriptures with us. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. And as you're either turning to or typing in Acts 17, uh, we'll be in verse 16. Um, Just a little bit of recap. Um, We are on um, Paul's second missionary journey currently. There'll be three total separate journeys throughout uh, Acts. And last week, we saw Paul and his team run out of both Thessalonica and then Berea, right? Where they go in, they meet first with Jews and then with a Gentile audience, where they see conversions and then Jewish religious authorities um, basically work up a mob against them, run them out of town. Um, And then in Berea, right, the, the mob basically followed them to the town, ran them out. And so in verse 15 last week, we see Paul head on to Athens, um, most likely by, by, by ship, right, alone. And his team has stayed in Berea. Um, a verse that we looked at, as we just talked about, how do we approach Scripture last week? One of the, the verses we read, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, talking both about Jews and about Gentiles who are non-Jews. It says, this, um, for Jews demand signs and Greeks, so Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jews, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so last week we primarily saw Paul coming up and, and preaching Um, the stumbling block of the cross to Jews. This week we're going to see the foolishness of of what God has done through Christ to non-Jews, right? Who who cannot imagine a crucified Savior. But before we begin reading in Acts 17, I'm going to tell you a story that may feel a little unrelated at the moment. I promise we're going to come back to it, okay? So um, when, when Carmen and I moved, um, it's becoming increasingly a long time ago, nearly 20 years ago, um, to Yemen, um, we had to study Arabic. And Carmen thrived. She did really well in Arabic. I did not. Um, it, was, it became, I was like the laughing stock of the class. And here's the thing, I was actually trying. Like I was used to doing well in school. And now here we are at the end of you know, a four-hour block in a classroom setting trying to learn Arabic and our teacher, who was in Yemeni, would often call on me to answer a question, knowing I was going to give my best effort, and that everyone else would have a moment of levity. And so, like, seriously, like, multiple times a week, it would be like, so, Jeremy, answer this question for us. And I'm trying, and the whole class would burst out laughing, and I'm like, I don't know what's funny. Because, like, I'm, I'm trying here. And so, one was the word for hospital and then the head wrap like the turban one is mushedda and one is musteshfa right they're they're different words but they sound similar and so i was saying look at the hospital on my head right and because i was mi- mixing these words up there would be times where we would get in a taxi and i would tell the taxi driver in arabic where we needed to go and he would look at me and say i don't speak arab or i don't speak english and i'm right and i'm like i'm not speaking English, I'm speaking Arabic, and all of this is taking place in Arabic, and he's just like, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. And so Carmen sheepishly would kind of 
say it. And I'm like, that's what I said. Because he would immediately go, all right, let's go. And he, we would go. And so obviously it had something to do with my enunciation or my accent. Um, but anyway, language, right, did not go well for me. And we're going we're gonna to just kind of hold a comma there, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Let's pick up now in verse 16. I promise it's not just a random story to start. All right, so now in Acts 17, we, we have Paul has headed to Athens. Now let's begin in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, meaning his team at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the, the Arapah. I'll practice that word. Um, Areopagus, good grief. It like locked down there. You would have thought I planned that. Like it hits me. Like I did not plan that. That would have been a good thing to plan. I didn't plan that. Saying, man, we know this new teaching that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and on earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. 
So, as we continue in Acts, as we see Paul in Athens awaiting his team, we, we see his kind of just normal rhythm of life, right? That he is going to the synagogue and he is ministering to the Jews in Athens, but that he's also um, engaging with the non-Jews, the Gentiles, right? He's going to the marketplace. He's, he's keeping this kind of rhythm and pattern of his ministry, that he's exploring the city. Athens is still like a famous city. It was um, built in the 5th century AD, so it was some 500 plus years old at this point, And it had a reputation for being a place of knowledge, of intellect, of philosophy. Um, you can imagine it was um, kind of an, an arrogant city because of the intellectualism. Um, and it, it, it loved its reputation. It was not the greatest, biggest city. But they thought well of themselves. They loved their reputation of being kind of a center of culture and of learning. And as Paul is moving through this beautiful city of architecture and reputation and of history, right, he is, it says, right, provoked in verse 16, like by the idols that he has seen throughout the city. They, they had statues to all the Greek gods, right? They had temples to, to worship the different pagan deities. And he has seen this worship take place. He has seen these things and it's, it's provoking him. Like, what is it that's provoking him? First and foremost, it is, it's that God is worthy of worship, right? He is worthy of glory and it is being withheld from God by these folks who are worshiping these, these tangible things that they can hold and see, right? He's saying like God doesn't share his glory. Listen to what Isaiah 42 verse 8 says. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols, right? That Paul knew like you are robbing God of of glory and of worship that he is richly deserving of. And so it, it provokes him, right? He's seen these these literal carved images. But the issue isn't just the image that's been carved, right? Because we don't walk through downtown Pampa and and see this. But it is that these idols, they have their heart, right? That they're putting their affection and their attention upon them. And so idols can be carved, right? They can be held. They can be made. They can be viewed and they can be visited. But they can also be internally in our hearts and in our minds. Where are we putting our Praise, our worship, our affection, our attention, our desire upon. And he sees the absurdity of this. If we go back to Isaiah, if you turn over even one chapter to Isaiah 44, there's like an 11, 12 verse section here. We're not going to read all of this from 9 to verse 20. But, but we see the, the foolishness of, of making idols, right? Verse nine says, all who fashion idols are nothing and the things they delight in do not profit, right? Look at verse 10, who fashions a God or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all of his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human, right? He goes on, look at verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm and he becomes hungry. And his strength fails, and he drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it with a pencil. 
He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Right? He, he just continues to say, like, um, look down at verse 16, talking about wood. Now, half of it he burns in a fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god? His idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and I will make the rest of it an abomination and fall down before a block of wood. Right, like he's he's just writing about the absurdity of you're creating this thing, and you're using some of it for fuel, right? And then you're worshiping the rest of it. He's and so look through Isaiah forty four nine through twenty this week is and just um, see the argument that Isaiah makes. And the the other reason he's provoked is right, like think about the Ten Commandments, right? Like we have one God, we don't make graven handmade images, right? To worship. What, what did the people of Israel, as they were removed from Egypt, as they were rescued by God, right? When, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, they're like, ah, we need something to worship. And so they make a golden calf, right? Like it's where the, the Ten Commandments are shattered, right? Like that, that God has said, I don't share my glory with another. That there's this um, provocation that's happened, there's this jealousy that's happening. If you want to get, um, maybe in a way that will, attack your emotions a little bit it's the idea of adultery right that you're being provoked your your jealousy is being because someone who is not supposed to be in the relationship has been brought in and attention has been turned right and so god is saying your worship your glory is for me and me alone because i'm worthy of it and these other things will fail you because they're false like and so paul is walking through the city and he is provoked by this and so as he is having conversations, right? He's going to the marketplace. He's engaging people in this, right? Some of them, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in verse 18, they conversed with him. And after hearing him, they say, what does this babbler wish to say? And so they take him uh, right to the Latin is Mars Hill, right? It was a, it was a city, uh, a hill within the city where people would have philosophical conversations, right? It was between the market, right? And kind of the religious center. And it also became known where the council would meet to hear these different sort of arguments. And so I want to give you just a brief uh, background on both of these philosophical groups to understand why Paul makes some of the arguments that he makes. The Epicureans believed, right, that the gods might exist, but they're aloof and they're far from us. And so they believed, like, let's just live our life because the gods don't intervene They don't care. They're far off. And so they would say, we have been saved from religious delusion and any of its obligations. Right? There is no, they do not believe in any sort of life after death. So there's no future life. The world wasn't created. And the main goal is to seek as much pleasure as you can and avoid pain. Right? Because there's no reward. There's no punishment. And there's no godly involvement. Right? And so if I'm not worried about what happens after death... I'm just going to live this life to the right 
to get all that I can. I'm going to, I'm going to bring all that I can out of it. That means less pain, more joy, and God doesn't care. The Stoics, um, which is a word we still use to say someone has a, a Stoic disposition, they were all about reason, right? And they believed that there was some sort of kind of divine reason that was out there that we all had a little bit of, and so that would make us a child of God with some of the language they would use. But that reason kind of knit the world together, and they wanted the world to be unified, um, but ultimately their goal was self-sufficiency, that no matter if something good came, you're stoic. If something bad came, you're stoic, right? You are self-controlled. You don't feel or are impacted by these things. You're just moving through life in control regardless of external factors. They didn't believe that history was linear, that it was going anywhere. It was cyclical, right? Like it would eventually like kind of start over, and then it would start over again, and it would start over again. That it wasn't headed anywhere, and so they're accusing Paul when they call him a blabber. What they're saying is, hey, you're taking a little bit over here like a bird picking up a crumb. And then you're taking a little bit here and you're taking a little bit here. You have no original thoughts, but you're trying to pass yourself off as knowing something. And you're just like quoting from all these different like ideas. Like what you're saying doesn't even make sense. You're talking about people living after death. You're talking about this um, Jewish God, Jesus, like, right, like, like, what are you talking about? None of this makes sense. And so they invite him to come and to speak. They want to hear more about it. Very likely they're, they're mocking him. And it's like, this will be entertaining at the very least, right? We'll see this fool stand up and try to, try to talk. And so there's a crowd and they, he begins, right? He says like, what is this new teaching in verse 19 that you are presenting. Luke makes a subtle little jab here, right? Look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. He's like, you just accused Paul of like picking up crumbs and trying to string them together. But you're simply like, what you want to do is spend your days hearing these crumbs from all over the place. Like you're entertained by this. So Luke just kind of kind of lays a little subtle jab in there. So Paul stands before the crowd and he begins to teach. Look at verse 22. Right? As he's standing in the midst of their city, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. Do you notice that Paul isn't just like, Hey, fools! Like, y'all are all going to go to hell, right? Like, he's not, like, coming out and being offensive, right? He has been given an audience, and he is looking to make a connection. Now, Paul speaks firmer with his Jewish brothers and sisters, right? Because they have a shared scriptural history. They have a, a shared history where they're saying, like, like we were, we're God's people. We were supposed to see this coming. Here, with these folks who have not been prepped, who are hearing about Jesus for the first time, he knows his message is offensive. He's not trying to start with offense. And he even looks for a way to segue it. He's like, I've been walking through your city, taking in the sights, and I've looked at all, like, you're obviously religious people. I noticed something. You have this, like, statue, this idol that actually says, in case we've missed one, basically. Like, we've, we've tried to cover all our bases, but in case we missed one, 
Here's the statue for it. To the unknown God. And so he says, hey, I know who that God is. I want to tell you about him. And then he begins. Look at verse 24. This God is the God who made the world and everything in it. Right? He's already kind of hitting back at the Epicureans who would not believe that the world had been created. He's like, there's a God who is involved. He made the world, everything in it. And he is the Lord of heaven and on earth and does not live in temples made by hand nor is he served by human, made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Both groups at this point would have applauded and said, you're right. Like, we don't need the idols. Like, like the gods are aloof. We're just kind of trying to make it through. You're right. They don't live in these temples. They don't live in these statues. And he said, no, no, no. There's a God. And he's made it all. And because he's made it all, he doesn't need an idol. He doesn't need you to do something for him. He doesn't need... A temple because he is the Lord of all. Listen, it is a reminder to us this morning, right? That God doesn't need us. Like, he doesn't need me, right, to pastor Redeemer. Like, God is more than capable of moving his mission forward in Pampa and in Yemen and all over the world. But he utilizes us, right, as partners in his work, but he is more than capable. He is not dependent. And he's saying he's made us all. He's Lord of heaven and earth, right? Like they would have seen the gods as like this God has this section of the world, like Poseidon's got the sea and Zeus has the heavens, right? And Hades has the under, like they would have said like, right? Like they're all separated. He's like, no, no, no. One God, he's got it all. He is Lord of all of it. And he doesn't need anything from us, right? The Greek pantheon, often that God's needed things from mankind. Verse 26, he made one man. He made from one man. He's going all the way back to Adam here. Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He said, like, he took this one guy and then he, right, has made all the world that we see and know. Right? He's saying, you, you think you're special here in Athens, But God is the one who has orchestrated all of this. It's also a reminder to us, right, that um, where we, where races have wanted to be superior. And it's a reminder here that God, right, through Adam has sent out, right, and there's racial harmony being taught here. Like that he is the one who has sent out the nations to live on the face of the earth. He determined their periods and their boundaries and their strengths of these dynasties and how long they lasted. Showing that God is orchestrating, that God is in control. That He is creator. We can go back to Isaiah 42 where we saw His comment on idols. And then in verse 5, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. That God is not aloof. He's not distant. He is active and he is engaged and he has built it. He has done it and he is continuing to. That he is in control. So he says, right, that they have, he's determined allotted periods and boundaries. Why? In verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him. What is he saying here? It's 
This is where it gets offensive. He's like, as you feel for it, he's picturing them blind, right? Like that they're, they're out there and they're trying not to stumble into anything and they're grabbing for truth, but they cannot walk confidently. They cannot walk boldly because they cannot see they're blind. And so they're hoping, grabbing, feeling for truth. It's why they're willing to go and hear everyone talk about all the different divinities and gods and situations. They're like, maybe one of them will finally be a handhold to grab onto that will feel solid and stable. And he said, but you've created a whole system where that's actually all you do. You've almost quit looking for truth. Because this is now your truth, is that you just look for truth. Instead of finding solid. He's like, but that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. But now, so he said something kind of offensive, like you're not as smart as you think you are. But he says you're not as far off either. And he quotes two of their own poets. The first uh, being a poet who wrote, In him we live and move and have our being. Right? This poet is uh, Epimendes who had lived some 600 years earlier in Crete. And then he quotes a second, for we are indeed his offspring, Aratus, who had lived roughly 300 years. So he's taking things from their culture and saying, hey, there's some elements of truth to this. In him we do live and move and have our being. And we are indeed the offspring of God. But you can actually know this God. It's not just thought here. It's not just philosophical banter. You can know him. There's good news. You're not as far off as you thought you might be. You, you, you actually have sniffed. You have, you have striven and like maybe found some elements of this truth. He continues. Being then God's offspring. So he quotes from this prophet, or sorry, this poet, Aratus. And then in verse 29, so he said, so if we all agree that we are the offspring of God, verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. So he said, like, so if we, flesh and blood, are the offspring of God, why are we building things out of stone and wood and iron? Like, why are we doing that? Why would we think that we can create through art and imagination of man and image that would bring in the divine. He's like, we're already his image bearers. Right? Like, you're already getting a, a taste of what God is like by seeing us, our flesh, and our blood. And so it's why he would go back to the absurdity of Isaiah 44. So the good news he wants to tell them is you can know this God. You can be connected to him. The times of ignorance in verse 30 that God has overlooked. This time of ignorance was the idea that, that the God of Scripture was just for the Jews. And what, what is Paul on a, a mission to say? No, it's for the world. It's for all the nations. It's for all peoples. Right? Like, the, in the Old Testament had promised that, and we had missed that. The times of ignorance God overlooked. He's not saying that he wasn't holding their sin against them, but in the midst of their idolatry in their midst of their rebellion that he wasn't instantaneously just punishing them it's been postponed judgment had been postponed till when till the cross 
That Jesus has taken, right, you have rebelled, you have worshipped other gods, and you're thinking, oh no, God's coming for me. And he says, no, 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 good news. There was one. His name was Jesus. And he lived the life you were supposed to live and haven't. And then he went to the cross, and he was crushed, and he was crucified so that your sin could be wiped out. So that you could taste and see that the Lord is good. So that the judgment of God would not fall on you because it's fallen on him. And not only that, but he walked out of the grave. Right? They had no framework in Greek thought for an afterlife. So the resurrection was like a bizarre thought to them. But he's saying God has affirmed right, that Jesus has done what he has promised to do because he's alive today. Look at the end of verse 31. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It is the mystery of Gentile inclusion that God has judged his son and not us. And so what is the call now? It's to repent. Right? Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people... Everywhere, so this includes the Athenians, this includes those of us here, to repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And who's that man? So he's saying, you need to repent, you need to turn to God, turn away from these idols, because the judgment will come, there is an afterlife, and the one who satisfied the wrath of God will be the judge. But you can know him, right? You can be at peace with God, the living God, right? And so this is where Paul will write, it sounded like foolishness to the Greeks. And yet, verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others, right, were kind of in between. They said, we'll hear you out again, like they're intrigued. And then in verse 34, we find that there are some who believe, that some hear this and believe. And think about the, the Jews who had the scriptures, who had the history, and many of them are rejecting Jesus. And here we have some um, Gentiles, some non-Jews in Athens who are just like, first time, I, I want Jesus. Like, I, I trust and believe and I will repent of this. It's a call, right, to repent and to trust that God is stirring hearts like we saw him do with Lydia so that they can believe. That Luke would, inc- like, would leave this. Listen, we started Acts 2. Thousands of people being saved. Like Peter's preaching, thousands. And here we get two names and told there's a few more. But it's these inroads being made, right? It's not about the numbers. It's not about the, the, the quote-unquote success. It is about the fact that the gospel is going to places it's never been. And people are trusting and believe it, believing it even when they've never heard it. Even when they have lived a, like idols lived lives chasing idols and they have been far from the Lord. And so here's where I want us to end this morning. What are the idols of our community? Of your friends? Of your family? What are the idols that you have left behind? What are the idols of our nation? Like, do we know, like, not most likely what the carved graven image is, but what is it that has our friends, our family, our neighbors, the citizens of America, like what is it that has their heart and their attention and their affection? 
Like, where are they pouring out their lives? Where were you pouring out your life before having tasted and seen that the Lord is good? There, there are a myriad of them. But listen, one of the most prominent ones today would be my truth. Right? Like, what's your truth? What's your truth? What, like, because it's all about, like, it's, there's no collective truth. It's my truth and your truth, right? Like, as long as I, I, I know what I believe, I don't worry about what anyone else believes. It's not that different from those in Athens who had a myriad of gods to choose from. Who could walk through and say, well, I choose Athena, or I choose Zeus, or I choose Poseidon, or I choose, like, I just pick one. And you, you do you, and I'll do me. Right? That we seek our truth, not the truth, which is different. That we believe that we are self-determining our own life. And so, because we live in the Bible Belt, then we'll slap a little Jesus on top. Right? And say, I'm going to do me, but I know you're going to ask me about it, so I'll say a little bit of Jesus, too, to get you off my back. Instead of that we have bowed a knee and submitted to the Lord of heaven and earth, who has given everything we need for life and godliness, who has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, who has sought us out, who has not given instant judgment when we have rebelled against him and and shows each of us our own ways, right, to find things that satisfy us. But that he has sent Jesus to rescue us. Listen, the question that we're asking here is, do we have the ability to see with spiritual eyes? Because Paul walked through a beautiful city, right, Athens, and instead of just focusing on the architecture and the reputation and the wisdom and the history... He saw beneath reality to the truer, deeper spiritual reality that these folks are far from God. Are you able to sit at a dinner table? Are you able to sit in, at, at work? Are you able to be on a ball field? Are you able to be in your neighborhood and look around and go, everything looks fine. And these folks are chasing something that's not Jesus. And it will lead them to ruin. Because they're far from him and they've rebelled against him. Listen, that message is by nature offensive. But it's, but it's true. And so do we, we take a, a note out of Paul's playbook here that we don't intentionally then offend to begin with. And it also means that often you cannot start with the cross. You can't just walk up to someone and say, did you know that Jesus died for your sins? That is a true statement. But what is, the, what is their heart crying out for? Like, what is it that they're asking? Because the gospel will speak to it, and the answer is that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected on their behalf. But we live in a place where everyone assumes they already know that. So how do we get to the truth in a manner that they'll hear it? What did Paul do? He didn't start with the cross. He started with, you seek truth to an unknown God, and you believe God's aloof. God's not aloof. God is engaged and he's active and he's created. And by the way, you think that this is the end after death? No, there's judgment. Oh, you're worried about that now. Okay, but wait a second. Jesus. Right? Like he, he brings up a need that they would have seen and felt and known. And then he shows them the answer is Jesus. So are we able to do that? Are we able to speak the gospel not in an A plus B plus C equals the cross way? But able to hear what's the cry of someone's heart. What they're, what they're pursuing and seeking and know how Jesus, how the scriptures would speak to that. 
if it's satisfaction or if it's fear or if it's doubt or if it's eternity, right? If it's truth or if it's self-determination, like what is it that they're actually asking? And that is where we want to be a people who are gospel fluent. You're wondering about the language at the beginning going, we're almost done. How are we coming back to that? Right? That we want to be gospel fluent. Are we able to hear and be in and out of conversations in such a manner that Jesus is just there? And it's not simply, well, the cross, right? But it's the cross nuance, right? And all the ways that we've seen Paul, he's talked about history. He's talked about nature. He's talked about philosophy. He's talked about poetry. But what does it all come back to? Jesus. But he doesn't start there. He connects with those who are listening who have questions. And so for us to learn to be gospel fluent, I mean, sometimes it's formal training. Like I sat in class for Arabic class four hours every day, and I learned, tried to learn Arabic. But I was also, my teacher basically was like, get out of the class and go talk to people. Which meant what? I was embarrassed all the time. Where they're just like, people are laughing at me. Right? But I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm saying, look at the dog black instead of the black dog, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm messing it up and I'm speaking bad Arabic in order to be able to ultimately, why was I learning it at all? So I wanted to tell them about Jesus. And it meant that I was going to have to not worry about my name or my reputation or my pride. I had to just speak and make mistakes. Paul is standing in a room of philo- or outside on a hill around a bunch of philosophers. This is what they do. And people are mocking him and scorning him and thinking, look at this fool. But he's not worried about his reputation. He is making much of the living God. Knowing that God will draw men and women to repentance. Are we willing to have awkward, uncomfortable conversations at the dinner table on the sidelines of a soccer field or a baseball field at, right in our neighborhood across the fence where we don't always maybe get it right where sometimes we stumble and bumble over our words where they walk away shaking their head going you're you're special right but you are pointing them to jesus because you are attempting to hear the cries of their heart that they may not actually be saying, but you begin to have spiritual eyes to see what's actually going on and begin to ask the Lord, would you save them? Would they see satisfaction and hope and stability in you, Jesus? And if you would be so kind to use my words or my efforts or my attempts to do that, God, even better. That we wouldn't think we have to have perfect dialect and enunciation to share the gospel. And that we'll get better as we do it. And listen, if you're hearing this and going, I don't even know where to begin, then like, let's say that. Like, let's not be embarrassed by that. Let's ask for help and let's begin to do this, to be people who are gospel fluent, hearing and listening to the stories, the idols, the doubts, the fears of the world around us, And pointing them to the hope that we know, that we have tasted, that we have seen the solid ground of Jesus. That is why Acts continues. And Acts 17 is a beautiful picture of that. Both last week to the religious and this week to the irreligious. Let's pray.
Father, this morning, Lord, would you um, arrest our attention? Would you elicit a response in us? Not that we walk around feeling guilty over having not shared the gospel, but instead that we would once again taste and see the beauty of it, that it would be uh, burning in our in our hearts, in our minds, in our mouth, that we want to share it, but we want to share it in a way that is beneficial to our hearers. God, would we, like Paul, care about our city and in, in the ways that they are pursuing and running after things that are not of you, that we would want you to get the glory. And this isn't about our success. This isn't about a pat on the back. This isn't about approval. It is about the living God receiving the glory that you are richly, justly due from the world. And that is the nations coming to know, to trust, and to delight in you. So, Father, would we be courageous? Would we be bold? Would we speak? Um, And, God, would you use us for the good of our friends, our family, our neighbors, our community, our world? And, God, and ultimately for your glory. Please, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.